the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning at 6.06 a.m. Good morning, everybody. We've got a busy show, as we always do. Lots to talk about. Excuse me, I still have a bit of the morning voice, not particularly good for morning host. In any event, we are going to be joined. Don't worry, folks, I'll get rid of it. We're going to be joined later in the morning by our good friend, attorney and professional engineer, Chris P. Corbett. I like to call him Crispy Bacon for short. Uh, In any event, uh, he will join us to talk about important issues of the day. Uh, But we're going to start our conversation one-on-one or one-on-many, whatever the case may be, uh, because I really want to raise some important issues with you. The world is really at a remarkable time now, folks, and there's a lot to talk about because no longer has uh, nuance uh, or is nuance even in the mix. Uh, It is all, no pun intended, black and white at this point. Uh, And so we need to really delve into the issues of the day as we always do on the Dave Ellswick Show, as we do when I'm on and even when I'm not on the Dave Ellswick Show, of course, and talk about what's going on. First on the agenda, of course, as we often talk about, is the complete bias now of the mainstream media. I realize that that has become a somewhat hackneyed talking point So I'm just somebody else on the radio repeating the same old talking point about how the media has gotten so bad. But the fact is that we have to call out the media for their biased behavior. Remember, folks, we are talking about issues of bias. And one of the preeminent issues of bias today is the bias of the media. Because the media helps us form our view of reality. Helps set forth the landscape of the law, the landscape of politics, the landscape of social interaction. And they do so now intentionally with a skewed perspective to bring about a goal. It used to be that the news would report and the outcome would be what it is. I'm not saying that the news was ever purely unbiased. 
You can't achieve that goal, but you can aim for that goal. And the news, the mainstream media, no longer so aims. So when you aim for that goal, and as I've mentioned so many times on this show, I have been reading the New York Times since literally I was a kid. And up until very recently, I thought it was a very good paper, which was nonetheless somewhat liberally focused, somewhat left of center focused. Okay, I can deal with that. I read the paper. I say, okay, I know that the folks that work there are liberal and they imbue some of that into their writing, not pursuant to an agenda, but it's sort of like saying to a French guy who comes to America as an adult, guess what? You have a French accent, right? Because that has been imbued in the way he formulates and articulates words. So he has a French accent. You can understand them. You know that some words will sound a little different. And you know the source of that difference and how to filter out that difference. And so that's what I had done and many had done all along the time in reading the New York Times and other publications as well. But that's not the case anymore, folks. It's not about filtering out a slight leftist bias. It reminds me of a good friend of mine who's an attorney downtown, Mark Hampton. He's an excellent criminal defense attorney. I met him through my colleague, uh, Tom Sullivan. In fact, Tom works with Mark Hampton on criminal defense cases. Tom Tom and uh, Mark, incidentally, I will mention in the context of what's going on in society today, often represent uh, poor folks, uh, minorities, white folks as well, uh, and they don't get any credit for it, I got to tell you. In any event, Mark, I, I think he may have quit smoking, but he was, uh, I'm not sure, but in any event, he was a, a serious smoker for some time, and uh, I came into his office one day, and he has one of those little air purifiers, but a little one, and it's sitting up on the shelf, and the office smells like cigarette smoke, and there's a little bit of a, uh, of a tinge to the air purifier. I think it had been there a long time. And I said to him, Mark, uh, it lost. The air purifier lost. My point being is that tiny little air purifier could not work to overcome the bellows of smoke in the office year over year over year. And that's the analogy I want to draw for you all relative to reading the media today. Like I said, when you used to read the New York Times and it had this slight leftist bias... You could put on that air purifier by analogy and filter out that leftist bias or at least know where it was taking place. And so it would not be surrounding you, if I dare extend this metaphor too far, like a cloud of smoke. No longer, folks, the media today is entrenched in its leftist bias. You may have seen that the stock market took almost 7% drop yesterday. Okay, right? Well, that's how a market works. People decide that the market had become too inflated or they decide that the long-term prognosis of the economy is not as great as they had thought the day before or the short-term prognosis is not as great. Whatever 
whatever the horizon of the investors are, right? This is the beauty of capitalism. The stock market is determined by the will and desires of each individual investor. No one's telling them you must invest, you must pull out, whatever the case may be. So yesterday's um, headline, New York Times, no longer in denial about grim outlook, drive market down. Think of, let's break that down. First of all, New York Times decides that everybody, the whole population that had invested in the stock market was in denial simply because the market turned. Not because there was a change in circumstances, not because there was a reevaluation of what was going on with new information, but because everybody had blinders on until now. And we, the New York Times, have been saying it all along. By the way, that we've been saying it all along happens just coincidentally to be entirely concordant with the will and desire of the Democratic Party because they want to talk down the economy so that they can say they're going to bring the economy back up. No, no coincidence there, folks. No coincidence, excuse me, at all. Well, guess what, folks? This morning, the Dow futures up significantly. Now, I can't promise you that that will hold. I can't promise you that the market won't take a downturn. I can't promise you the reverse, that the market might not spike incredibly today. Nobody can. That's the perversity of the headline in the New York Times. First of all, it assumes they know and knew all along that the increase in the market since the significant drop at the outset of the shutdown from the coronavirus <clears throat> was all misguided, was all a, a function of uh, excited uh, exuberance, uh, false hope, uh, burying your head in the sand. Uh, and conservative falsehoods. That's what the left has been saying, and that's what the media has been saying. They are one and the same, practically, these days, in fact. And yet, their claim, which was essentially, you see, you see, we've been telling you all along that the market was going to crash, that the upswing in the market was entirely false, And here's our proof. Hold on, because we are now on the downturn of the roller coaster. And the very next day, Dow futures up significantly. Again, that might switch again. My point is not that I know which way the market is going. Nobody knows. If you knew which way the market was going, you would have more money than there is money. You know, folks, you can invest in a market whether it goes up or down. That's right. So if it goes up, if you predict it's going up, what do you do? The simplest thing is you buy stock or a basket of stocks. Because if you buy it today and you think it's going to go up tomorrow and it goes up tomorrow, that stock or basket of stocks is worth more tomorrow. And then you can sell them. Same as if you bought gold or silver or corn, anything. If you think 
Whatever you buy today is going to be worth more tomorrow. Well, then you buy it today with the intent of selling it tomorrow. And tomorrow, of course, doesn't necessarily mean literally tomorrow. It means in the future. It can, of course, also literally mean tomorrow. But if you think the market's going to go down, you can also invest largely, albeit not entirely, in the same fashion. You can go to a broker and say, I want to sell. I want to predict that the stock market is going to go down. So I want to sell this stock or, or basket of stocks. And you might be thinking, yeah, but I don't own those stocks. You don't have to. You can actually sell stock you don't have and then consummate the transaction at the end. So you could sell, say, GE stock today. And the way you would do that is you, quote, borrow, end quote, the stock from the broker and you pay an interest fee for that. And then tomorrow when it goes down, if your prediction proves true, mind you, then you buy it, that transaction cancels itself out and you make the, the money on the difference. On the difference from the drop, folks. And of course, all of this can also be done through options. And if you don't understand that, that's fine. Don't do it then, by the way. If you don't understand options, don't invest in options. The point is, you can invest either way. Because there's always going to be somebody else on the other side of the transaction. If you want to sell GE because you think it's going to go down, someone out there is going to want to buy it because they think it's going to go up. How do you know? Oh, trust me. How do I know? Because the market's been operating that, that way forever. Now, sometimes a market is thin, meaning not a lot of buyers, uh, but those are peculiarities uh, of stock and of of whatever the economy is doing at the time. But the notion, you can buy and sell stock any time you want. It is a microcosm, indeed, of capitalism. So the notion that the New York Times has some sort of insight into what the stock market is going to do, nonsense. The notion that the New York Times has any insight uh, into politics, the economy, social Uh, interaction, as far as I'm concerned, is nonsense. So let's stew on that thought for a moment, folks. We're going to go to a break, and then we will be back to continue our conversation next. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning, 623 a.m. Folks, before we get back to the conversation, I want to let you know that there will be a Trump rally June 14th at the state capitol at 2 p.m., and Dave will be emceeing that rally. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Tim Griffin will be there. Jan Morgan will be there. uh, uh, Pastor Iverson Jackson will be there. So I thought you would be all interested in hearing about that. Again, the date is June 14th at the state capitol, front steps, 2 p.m. Folks, we're talking about the environment in which we live today. And of course, I don't mean the environment like the trees and the grass, albeit that is relevant. I mean the political, the social environment in which we live today. Because it's really remarkable when you look at what is going on around us to say to yourself, is that real? Did that just happen? And case in point, have you seen... What's going on in Seattle? The police, not at their instructions, not at their desire, mind you, have withdrawn 
from part of Seattle. They've said to these protesters, oh, there's no law there. You, you're in charge now. You're in charge now. Now, I don't know how that applies, by the way, in terms of those people in that section that own property, that rent buildings, that live there, that work there. I don't know what that environment's like, but I've got to believe it's not literally a desert of sand so that there's nothing to be had there. And yet the government has said there's no government there. No, government doesn't apply there because these protesters have taken over. This is exactly what the president has been referring to when he talks about lawlessness and what Tom Cotton was referring to when he said you can't have a system where there is violent rioting. He didn't even get to, frankly, the point of complete abandonment of our soil by our government entities. That's how absurd it is. And yet we see it happening in Seattle. You know, I have a lot of good friends who are conservative. I have, by the way, quite a number of good friends who are liberal as well. But on occasion, I hear from a conservative, one of these, um, I forget the term, but they're like protesters, meaning they say, oh, the sovereign nation types. And I got to tell you, folks, I understand the theory that underlies it. But when you say I'm not part of America, not you, the listening audience, I mean, when these people say I'm not part of the United States, I declare myself independent for these reasons or this document, the Constitution, such and such, so and so says I'm independent and therefore your authority doesn't apply to me. The way authority works is if someone can impose his will upon you, then they have the ability to do so. That's tautological. That's definitional. That is because it's defined that way. In other words, you can claim all you want that the police, the government, whatever it may be, has no authority to stop you, to search you, and to throw you in jail. But when they stop you and search you and throw you in jail and there's no judge to say otherwise, that means they have the authority. Let's let, let, So if the claim is kind of a religious claim, meaning not entirely provable in the end, but nonetheless, if the claim is, I disagree that they have that authority, even though they exercise that authority, okay, that's a philosophical difference. You can disagree as to events that have occurred in the Bible. I don't think that God split uh, the Red Sea. All right. All right. Well, I mean, I'll refer you back to the Bible and you say, well, I don't I don't believe that book is accurate. Okay. At that point, I'm not saying I agree with you, but at that point, that's the end of the discussion, right? You believe one thing, I believe another thing. I've got some body of evidence to support it, and you say that's not sufficient. Okay. What can I tell you? Same thing about these folks who claim to be sovereign, which is, okay, I get where you're coming from. I understand the logic of your position. But after that, guess what? Government's still going to throw you in jail. So if I am willing to criticize those folks that say, even though philosophically I understand some of your tenets, where you're coming from, where you say there is an illegitimacy to the exercise of authority, that authority nonetheless exists uh, and it is implemented against you. And so to claim that you're sovereign 
is rhetorically fine, but that's about all it is. It's rhetoric. And yet now we have the same thing sanctioned by government. Leftist government in Seattle, but nonetheless sanctioned by government. What? The government says, oh, by the way, you folks that decided you're sovereign, you're sovereign. We, yeah, we recognize that. Wait, what? If that's the case, then guess what? Then maybe the conservatives who believe in this sovereign nation notion, you like that? Sovereign nation notion? Who believe in this sovereign nation notion can go ahead and do their thing too. So be careful, lefties, what you wish for. Because you might get more of it than you actually desire. The notion that we would let protesters take over some section of the United States and declare it effectively independent, sovereign, is absurd, is patently absurd. Now, I'm not saying you go in there and you shoot them all. You go in there and you do what you're supposed to do. You use proper techniques. Think about that, folks, as we go to break right now. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Friday morning. It is 6.35 a.m. and we continue our conversation. However, if you miss any of the show, today or otherwise, be sure to listen to Dave on his podcast on 101.1 FM, theanswer.com. Uh, and you can listen at any time, of course, and download those podcasts. You can also call in at 501-823-0965. 501-823-0965. Folks, much of the discussion right now that's going on regarding what stems from the George Floyd killing is a melange, a mixture of proper concerns and political agenda, meaning the former, by definition, uh, has raised some legitimate issues, and the latter is the attempt by the left uh, to put their list of wants in and try to sneak them through, given the uproar and unrest that has taken place. And we need to be vigilant in preventing the latter as we aptly address the former. Of course, you've heard the president make that point. You've heard the attorney general of the United States, Bill Barr, make that point. I would like to read to you excerpts from a very important article written by really one of the great thinkers of modern day. Her name is Heather McDonald, and she's a conservative, needless to say. And she really is not only insightful, she's an excellent communicator, and she knows how to get to the heart of contemporary legal and political social issues. And so she writes a piece that says, the myth of systemic police racism, hold officers accountable who use excessive force, but there's no evidence of widespread racial bias. And we're going to get to some ex- many, some of the many examples where now the claim is that the police, they are 
inherently rotten to the core. That is nonsense, folks. I saw a, shall we say, quote-unquote, entertaining video just the other day where there were some protesters from the left screaming something, and I had no problem with that, by the way. They're entitled to have their views, as wrong as they may be. They're entitled to say them to whomever they want. Because remember, words don't hurt. Words are not acts of violence, barring some very remote exception. That is, you know, the notion that you've heard the term, you can't yell fire in in a theater. That's not exactly accurate, by the way, but it's close enough for the purposes of this discussion. That is, you can't say something that is going to lead to immediate, foreseeable, uh, physical danger. That doesn't mean, oh, I didn't like what he said, and I feel real bad, and that means I'm hurt. No! That is not what that means. That means you will physically be trampled on if somebody falsely yells fire in a theater. That's what that means. So people like to use that as a cudgel to claim far more entitlement to restrict speech. And the answer is wrong! So Heather McDonald aptly points out that the claim of systemic police racism is false. That's right, I said it! I repeated it, and I said it. The claim of systemic police racism is false. Sorry. Sorry. And I'm going to read for you later claims by, for example, law faculties. Not my law faculty, by the way. I'm going to read one from Penn State that someone sent me that claims exactly the opposite. These are well-educated Law professors that make these blanket claims. Could you imagine, by the way, making a blanket claim about any other group? If it was a claim based on race, you'd call it racism. If it was a claim based on sex, you'd call it sexism. Now, mind you, if it was about white men, you wouldn't call it either if you're a lefty because those people have no sex nor race, apparently, and one can bash them however one sees fit, it seems, Uh, to be the case. Let's go on with uh, Heather McDonald's outstanding. I really, folks, I recommend this to you, uh, that you read her. Uh, She, incidentally, is a fellow uh, at the Manhattan Institute, which is a conservative think tank. So uh, she writes, uh, uh, where did this appear in in the Federalist or in Heritage, one of these uh, publications, And she says, George Floyd's death in Minneapolis has revived the Obama era narrative that law enforcement is endemically racist. On Friday, uh, Barack Obama tweeted that for four, excuse me, not the number for millions of black Americans being treated differently by the criminal justice system on account of race is, quote, tragically, painfully, maddeningly normal, end quote. Uh, Mr. Obama called on the police and the public to create a new normal in which bigotry no longer infects our institutions and our hearts. Joe Biden released a video the same day in which he asserted that all African-Americans fear for their safety from, quote, bad police, end quote, and black children must be instructed to tolerate police abuse just so they can, quote, make it home. That echoed a claim Mr. Obama made after the ambush murder of five Dallas officers in July 2016. During their memorial service, the president said African-American parents were right to fear 
that their children may be killed by police officers whenever they go outside. Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz denounced the, quote, stain of fundamental institutional racism. We'll talk more about that false claim as well. On law enforcement during a Friday press conference, it claimed blacks were right to dismiss promises of police reform as empty verbiage. This charge of systemic police bias was wrong during the Obama years, says Heather McDonald, and remains so today. However, sickening the video of Floyd's arrest, and I'll add murder, uh, it isn't representative of the 375 million annual contacts that police officers have with civilians. A solid body of evidence finds no structural bias in the criminal justice system with regards to arrests, prosecution, or sentencing. Crime and suspect behavior, not race, determine most police actions. That's the key. That's the key. In 2019, police officers fatally shot 1,004 people, most of whom were armed, or otherwise dangerous. African Americans were about a quarter of those killed by cops, 235 last year, a ratio that remained stable since 2015. That share of black victims is less than what the black crime rate would predict since police shootings are a function of how often officers encounter armed and violent suspects. In other words, it's not a function of what happens to be your percentage in the population. Your whatever cohort we're talking about, whatever group we're talking about, it's not a function that, say, blacks are 13 percent of the population or Hispanics. I don't remember. Let's say 10 percent. I don't remember whether that number is correct. Whites, 65 percent ish. Right. So that doesn't mean that, therefore, 65 percent of the arrests need to be of whites. 65 percent of the police shootings need to be of whites. No, there's no reason to presume that the numbers of representation in the population are exactly the same as the number of police contacts. In fact, the left has been saying for years and years that minority communities are economically depressed, and yet they don't seem to recognize that economics is related to crime rate. Why? Because when you're poor... You have a greater incentive to engage in crime than when you're rich. That doesn't justify it. That doesn't make it appropriate. But it does make it a greater temptation. It makes it absolutely a greater temptation. Understandably so. And that's a challenge. And so when you have a police force that engages different groups at different rates based on the group's behavior... And that's going to be a point, I suspect, that the left is going to argue. Well, you see, that greater contact by the police is all racial profiling. All right, you know, <laughs> you keep going back in time to create some sort of justification that is not supported by the evidence. Well, how do I know that? Let's see what Heather McDonald has to say about that. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I need to pick up where I left off. African-Americans were about a quarter of those killed by cops. I said that last year, a ratio that remained stable since 2015. The share of black victims is less than what the black crime rate would predict since police shootings are a function of how often officers encounter rather armed and violent suspects. In 2018, and this is the key, the latest year for which such data have been published, African-Americans 
African-Americans made up 53% of known homicide offenders in the U.S. and commit about 60% of robberies, though they are 13% of the population. And that's the point. Should it be the percentage in the population that dictates the outcome of police interactions, or should it be the amount of crime? I want you to think on that point, Heidi, why don't we take our break now and we'll come back with the rest of the Heather McDonald piece uh, after this break. And I will tease at the top of the hour, Chris Corbett is going to join us. Remember, Chris Corbett is a lawyer and a professional engineer and I hope future candidate for state Senate. So with that, let's take a break and we we will be back after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck. Filling for Dave this Friday morning, 10 minutes before 7 a.m. Folks, we are talking about the Heather McDonald piece in which she points out that the claim of systemic racism in our police forces is simply not supported. Sorry to the left, I say. That is not supported. That doesn't mean that there aren't racists. There are. There always will be, I dare say. In every aspect of society, including the police, of course, because they are part of society. But it does not mean that the police is systemically biased, or I love the term, I say somewhat mockingly, I must concede entirely, structurally biased. Now, there is a notion of structural bias that could be legitimate, not true, but legitimate. That means if you have a system like apartheid, one can call that a structural bias because it is a law that literally says that blacks should be treated differently than whites. But we don't have such laws. In fact, we have laws quite the opposite. So this claim of structural bias is not even a a concept that is... I'm I'm struggling, frankly, for a word, Uh, but it's it's not a concept that makes sense. What is it? The walls? Is it the structure of the building that make it biased? There's nothing in the system. are, Are you saying that there's so many biased people in the organization that it's structurally biased? Well, the claim that there's so many biased people in the system is false. But even if it were true, that wouldn't make it structurally biased. But you see, when you use the term structural bias as a lefty, that allows you to make the next leap. What's the next leap? To say, well, you see, this has got nothing to do about individual preferences. It's got nothing to do with how people think. It's inherent. It's irrespective, no less, of individual actions, desires, preferences. It's built in. And then what's the next step? Tear it down. Tear it down entirely. And people, I've said this point for some time now, and people said, oh, come on. Oh, come on. You're exaggerating, Rob. Oh, come on. Have you heard defund the police? Have you heard that one? They are now, the lefties, open in their claims for overturning the foundations of our system. Of course, this is what the left had been criticizing the Russian intervention in the election about. Because what do the Russians want to do and what have they wanted to do? Just sow discord. 
just say that everything that we believe in is nonsense? Just to create havoc? There's more havoc here, the more of a vacuum politically, socially, economically they can try to fill. So the irony is that the left is doing exactly what they have complained about the Russians doing in regards to the election or elections. In any event, let's get back to the actual text of the Heather McDonald piece. She says the police fatally shot nine unarmed blacks and 19 unarmed whites in 2019. Now, let me comment on those numbers for a moment. Obviously, if you're a family member, friend, or even just a member of society, uh, uh, 38 uh, shootings of unarmed people causes concern, albeit you can shoot an unarmed person legitimately in a certain context, right? And that is... The, the, the standard correctly is if you feel your life or someone else's life is in um, jeopardy or significant risk of bodily injury. Or I think, let me say it differently, slightly differently, uh, risk of significant bodily injury. Yeah, well, both of those can occur with someone being unarmed. But the point I'm trying to bring out is 38 in a population of roughly 350 million people does not, does not describe some sort of system of murder. It does not. So she goes on to say that the police... Uh, fatally shot, as I said, uh, nine unarmed blacks and 19 unarmed whites in 2019, uh, down from 38 and 32 respectively in 2015. The Post, this is based on a Washington Post database, the Post defines unarmed broadly, in fact, to include, sorry, to include such cases as a suspect in Newark, New Jersey, who had a loaded handgun in his car during a police chase. In 2018, there were seven, uh, seven, four, excuse me, 7,407 black homicide victims. Assuming a comparable number of victims last year, those nine unarmed black victims of police shootings represents 0.1% of all African-Americans killed in 2019. Uh, but just to emphasize, emphasize, that doesn't mean that we should look past even one killing that is improper. As I said, Killing someone who's unarmed doesn't necessarily mean that it was an improper killing. We need to investigate that. Um, uh, By contrast, a police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is to be killed by a police officer. Just to set forth some additional statistics. Uh, On uh, Memorial Day weekend in Chicago alone... Ten African-Americans were killed in drive-by shootings. Such routine violence has continued. A 72-year-old Chicago man shot in the face on May 29 by a gunman who fired about a dozen shots into a residence. Goes on about other um, Chicago-based killings. The latest in a series of studies undercutting the claim of systemic police bias was published in August 2019 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The researchers found that more frequently officers encounter violent suspects from any given racial group, the greater the chance that a member of that group will be fatally shot by the police officer. Uh, goes on to say there this there is no significant evidence of anti-black disparity in the likelihood of being 
fatally shot by police, they conclude. And of course, the point there, right, as I as we've been discussing throughout this is simply that the the ratio that you need to look at about police shootings of armed and unarmed folks has to relate to the interactions police have with uh, criminals or potential criminals uh, and therefore not based on percentage in the population. The notion that virtually anything should be mirroring one's percentage in the population for any group is a bit silly for so many factors in life. So many. Not all, but so many. Um, Why do you think one group should have the same average height as another group? There's no reason to believe that. These are just silly presumptions made by people on the left. Uh, I want to try to get in before our next break a little little bit more of this article, folks. We've got a caller. We're going to hold that caller uh, over till after the break and then uh, happily talk with that caller. Chris Corbett uh, should be on the line uh, then as well. Uh, And so we are going to continue our conversation. We still have a a few more minutes uh, before our next break. So let's see if I can get in the rest of this Heather McDonald article. A 2015 Justice Department analysis of the Philadelphia Police Department found that white police officers were less likely than black or Hispanic officers to shoot unarmed black suspects. Now, mind you, this is an important point, folks, because remember, the claims by the left is you need to hire more minority police officers to avoid the types of behavior that the left is claiming is endemic in police operations. So now they say, well, those folks don't count. They, they, They don't count. Right, but it was the left who was clamoring for this. Of course, just let me be clear on this. I, I think we should hire people from all races. I obviously have no f- race-based filter in hiring. But that wasn't the claim of the left. The claim was quite the contrary, that there should be a race-based filter favoring certain racial groups because it will produce outcomes different than what occurred today. And the evidence is exactly the opposite. So yet another demonstration that the social policies of the left produce outcomes contrary to the left's claims. Because they make it up, folks. It's political. It's not empirical. It's not scientific. It's not well even thought through. It's just a political agenda. That's the problem here. And I hear the music starting, so I'm going to wind up this thought And Heidi's going to give me the signal and cut me off. Uh, But the point is that we've got a little bit left to this Heather McDonald piece. We'll pick that up uh, right after the break and demonstrate to you that this claim of endemic racism within the police departments is just not, I repeat, not supported by the evidence. So I want you all to think about that. We're going to take our break and we'll be back. Elsewhere. 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 
This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave on this Friday morning. It is 7.06 in the morning. Folks, we are continuing to talk about the Heather McDonald piece, uh, debunking the claim of systemic racism in our police departments. Incidentally, we had a caller before the break, Robbie from Maumel, that we lost that call. Robbie, feel free to give a call back in if you like. In any event, folks, we are finishing up the recounting of the Heather McDonald police, which in which she so effectively debunks his claim of systemic, I put that in air quotes for all of you not watching, systemic racism, endemic as well, is the claim false, uh, within the police departments across these great United States. And so the end of the piece, let me uh, read that to you, and then we will continue to discuss it. Uh, As I said, 2015 Justice Department analysis of the Philadelphia Police Department found that white police officers were less likely than black or Hispanic officers to shoot unarmed black suspects. Research by Harvard economist Roland Fryer Jr. also found no evidence of racial discrimination in shootings. Any evidence to the contrary fails to take into account crime rates and civilian behavior before enduring interactions with police. Going to my broader point, by the way, folks, about the fact that you should not assume that however any group appears in the population in terms of their numbers, their percentage in the population, that that should directly translate one-to-one to any specific outcome. Height, weight, police interactions, police arrests, etc. The false narrative of systemic police bias goes on, Heather McDonald, that is, resulted in targeted killings of officers during the Obama presidency. The pattern may be repeating itself. Officers are being assaulted and shot uh, at while they try... Yeah, I guess that's how it's written. At while they try to arrest gun suspects or respond to the growing riots, police precincts and courthouses have been destroyed with impunity, which will encourage more civilian civilianization, destroying violence. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Civilization destroying violence. That's my bad, folks. If the Ferguson effect of officers backing off law enforcement in minority neighborhoods is reborn as the Minneapolis effect. The thousands of law-abiding African Americans who depend, who depend, I emphasize, on the police for basic safety will once again be the very victims. I added very. The Minneapolis officers who arrested George Floyd must be held accountable for their excessive use of force, a notion with which I wholeheartedly agree, and callous indifference to his distress. Police training needs to double down on de-escalation tactics. But Floyd's death should not undermine the legitimacy of, an, of American law enforcement, without which we will continue on a path towards chaos. And that's the point, folks. It's the overreaction. Or, you know what? That's, that's not fair. I take that back. It's not overreaction. It's the overclaim of what has happened based on the George Floyd uh, event. Meaning... I have no problem with the reaction. I do have a problem with the violent reaction. I have no problem with the nonviolent reaction to the George Floyd killing. Let me emphasize the killing because last time I used event and I don't want that to be taken out of context. By event, I mean killing. But the, the conclusion that stems for many on the left therefrom, that's a problem. Uh, and so... 
Heidi's giving me the signal that uh, we have back on the phone, Robbie from Maumelle. Uh Robbie, how are you this morning? Robbie, we're having a tough time making you out. Okay, I'll have to call you back. Sorry. Oh, well, we had you there. Are you still there, Robbie? Okay, yeah, I'm here. There you go. There's yeah, now reason- it's good. We, we In the beginning, we were breaking up, but now you're good. Go ahead. What do you got for okay. us? There's a reason that police brutality is in the news. Yes, sir. And that's because it's, that's because it's news. If it were as bad as they make it out to be, there would be time to cover it. It's just like all the violence in the inner cities. They don't cover that on the national media because that's just normal. It's not news. That's a very interesting point, uh, Robbie. Thanks for calling in. Uh, We really appreciate that comment. And so Robbie's point is a salient one, which is essentially uh, the uh, corollary to the Heather McDonald piece, which is these events are tragic, they're critical, they deserve coverage, they deserve response, but they are not the norm. They are not the norm, as Robbie aptly points out. Well done, by the way, Robbie. Thank you for that insightful comment. And that's really the point here, folks, is that you can't draw this overwhelming conclusion. Remember, 38 shootings of unarmed folks Uh, In the last year, I think it was 2018, that it was recorded, uh, half of them shooting of blacks and half of them shooting of whites. 38 out of 350 million people. And we cannot assume that all 38 were unjustified. They're all tragic. They're all tragic. Even a justified shooting is tragic. Even a justified shooting of someone who's armed is tragic. It's necessary, but tragic. But the shooting of someone who's unarmed is is even more tragic. Uh, And so each one always needs to be investigated. But to claim that that somehow represents endemic wrongdoing and racism by police departments is just not supportable. Not supportable, folks. You know, we have something like 100,000 deaths from medical malpractice uh, every year. Every year. Does that mean that the medical system is out to kill us or there's some inherent bias or racism or some other um, level of intentional wrongdoing? No. It does mean there's a level of negligence that's too high. Absolutely. And if you want to make a claim about uh, those 38 killings in that regard, okay. That's a a fair uh, argument to make. You can also, by the way, regarding the 38 killings of unarmed folks investigate whether they were intentionally wrong as well. Absolutely. Absolutely you can. But even if you were to be able to prove that all 38 were intentionally wrongdoing actions, indeed racist actions, well, you couldn't claim all 38 to be racist because only half of them, uh, or well, only 19 out of the, yeah, uh, um, uh, no, I'm sorry. It was 38 white uh, and then 19 black. Um, so the total is um, whatever that adds up to. Uh, don't ask me to do math on the fly. In any event, uh, uh, if you're claiming that the 19 killing of black folks uh, was racist, you can investigate that. Uh, but you can't claim it uh, outright up front. Uh, and even if you were be able, would be able to prove that claim entirely, that would not demonstrate endemic racism across police departments. It just wouldn't, the math doesn't work out, folks.
So I think we need to move away from this claim, as Heather McDonald aptly points out, that our police departments are endemically racist and move towards an investigation of what we can do to improve policing. Incidentally, I will mention that prior, I believe it was even prior to this whole um, series of events stemming from the George Floyd killing, that our mayor here in Little Rock, uh, Frank Scott, who appointed the police chief, who is now under fire, uh, the mayor has now established some committee, commission, whatever you want to call it, to, to overlook, oversee, investigate, whatever the right term is, what's going on in the police department. In large measure, let's be frank, no pun intended, folks, uh, to cover the mayor's uh, behind uh, because the mayor is being criticized for hiring this absolutely incompetent police chief in Little Rock. Why do I say he's absolutely incompetent? Because they brought in, brought in this police chief who, when a police officer shot justifiably a wrongdoer who was armed, who was on drugs, and who was driving a car when the police officer shot him, that went to an internal review. Well, the mayor wanted that guy fired for political reasons. And he hired this new police chief prior there too, I believe, but shortly prior. And the police chief, of course, came in and did the mayor's bidding instead of objectively and evaluating the events so every command officer underneath underneath the new politically uh, hired police chief said that the officer did not commit a fireable offense every one of them every one of them the police chief and the mayor rushed the investigation the police chief overruled every one of the lower officers and said the police officer should be fired at the mayor's bidding, or at the mayor's preference. And then it went to court, and sure enough, a a liberal judge said that firing was improper. Not a conservative judge, a liberal judge said the firing was improper. And now the mayor's under um, some pressure as a consequence. So he said, oh. and by the way, now there are a number of complaints filed against... <clears throat> the police chief, for various and sundry other alleged wrongdoing. And so now, of course, the mayor is more hands-off. Oh, well, you know what? I'm going to bring in a commission to investigate what's going on here. Among them, he brings in uh, the former United States attorney uh, for um, this area. That is the former federal prosecutor. Uh, Her name is uh, Paula Casey. And uh, I'm not sure that the lefties realize that as a a former prosecutor, particularly during that time, that was during the Clinton era, uh, she was responsible for putting in a large number of black people in prison uh, for drug crimes. So uh, I'm not sure that fits the agenda of the political left, uh, but that's who they have appointed to this leftist committee, someone who put into prison a large number of black people under the drug laws that were enacted during the Clinton administration. She was a Clinton administration appointee and served in that office for a long time, by the way, uh, when we look at the general tenure for U.S. attorneys. So uh, she has a long history of uh, putting, amongst others, let's be fair, amongst others, uh, black people in jail 
for drug crimes. So I don't know if the left who have clamored for this commission or the mayor who is a lefty uh, and wants to appease uh, lefty voters, whether they recognize this. But in any event, hey, more power to him. I guess that's uh, uh, he'll get what he asked for. Uh, Folks, uh, with that thought, and before we continue on, uh, let's take a quick break uh, and we will be back after these short messages. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave this Friday morning. Let's take a look at the time. It's 7.23 in the morning. And on the phone with us is our good friend, uh, often co-host and uh, all-around good guy, uh, Chris P. Corbett, also known as Crispy Bacon. Uh, Crispy Bacon (laughs) is, uh, of course, an accomplished attorney. In Little Rock, graduate of the law school at which I teach, albeit uh, graduated before I started teaching there, so he didn't have to suffer the indignity of having me as a teacher. And uh, he's also one of not too many professional engineers in this state as well. And then the intersection of those two, that is a lawyer who's also a professional engineer. Uh, we really, we don't know the numbers for sure, do we, Chris? But we think you can count on one hand, probably, the number of lawyers who are also professional engineers in the state of Arkansas. Is that fair to say? What's your guess? That, that is fair to say. There's probably about three that I can think of offhand. Yeah, it's really remarkable, um, and it's really a wonderful combination. And that's why, amongst many other things, you are an expert in construction law. Right, because you understand the construction and you understand the law uh, from both ends. That's right. That's right. That's right. I just designed a uh, a large deck for somebody. I love doing the wood design, mm-hmm. steel design, concrete design. So I have a full practice uh, civil engineering firm, but just solo, just me. Yeah. Yeah, well, Chris has helped me out. Actually, as many of you know, Chris is my attorney. uh, And also, he's helped me out with engineering matters as well, right? He's looked over issues that I've had on the house uh, and and given given me his professional engineering experience. And folks, let me be clear about this. This is not salesmanship, but I just want to point out, you know, I I look over things on the house, uh, you know, like the foundation. That's probably the the core thing that a professional engineer would do in a person's house and i think oh well i kind of know what's going on not not after talking with chris uh there's a lot (laughs) going on when it comes to engineering that is not like common sense isn't that right chris that's true that's true anyway chris we're going to get back to topics of the day i just spent the last hour or so talking about the piece that you sent me because you're on top of these things by heather mcdonald that points out unequivocally that this claim that police departments across this nation are inherently structurally racist is simply false Simply false. Doesn't mean there's no such thing as racism. Doesn't mean that there aren't racists within police departments. Doesn't mean that police departments can use reform. Uh, it doesn't mean, or can't use reform, I should say. A little too many negatives in one sentence there. But it does mean that the broader claim, how, how like the left, to uh, uh, go a mile after giving an inch, right? Uh, but it doesn't mean that <laughs> right. the claim that police departments Uh, are inherently racist is in any way true, and it's not, right? There's just no evidence to support that claim. So, Chris, what I want to do now is start to read a statement that was promulgated by the faculty of the law school at Penn State, 
It's just one example. There are many out there, but someone sent me this one. And then I want you and I to talk about this because you are going to be shocked by the overbreath of the claims made by people who claim to be experts in the law and some expertise, at least, in society. Because, of course, the two intersect significantly. You're going to be shocked by what you hear. So let me bring that up. Lay it on me. I'm Lay gonna, it on me, I'm Rob. Gonna, let's I, hear it. I'm going to do it. So uh, let's see here. So this is from, like I said, Penn State Law School. And it says, it's got a bunch of what are known in the law as whereas clauses. They're just statements. They're assertions. Oh. Um, but you're going to love this. Notwithstanding, huh? Yeah. Notwithstanding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so first one. Uh, the faculty recognizes the ongoing systemic and perpetual racial and societal injustices in this country which have been passed on from generation to generation let's let's break that down no one disagrees oh, that there has been historical uh, racial and so, societal injustices but it says it's yeah. ongoing systemic and perpetual meaning it's as much today as it has been every you know in all years prior and that today we have systemic, let me go back to it, ongoing systemic and perpetual racial injustice. I don't think that's a fair claim. Uh, Do you think that's a fair claim, no, Chris? Absolutely not. Because I think that correlates absolutely exactly not. to what Heather McDonald was bringing, ab- bringing about regarding the police departments. You can't take those injustices that exist and claim ongoing systemic and perpetual. Perpetual means that it has been from the beginning till now. The same, so does ongoing, and systemic, that it is built into the system. Now, right. if she si- I, Go ahead. Yeah. Please, comment. Well, my, 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 my thoughts are um, on the systematic racism. There, there's, it's a fact that there's about twenty to 50,000 white supremacists in the United States. I, I think everybody can say that they are racist, period, right? It's Indeed. Bad. And... And and um, now, if you take that and and you try to uh, say that there's uh, systemic racism in a police force, the facts and the statistics just don't show that. And and Heather but McDonald brought have, that out, right? That's right. And in order to have that conversation, man, it has to be calm. It has to be logical, and we have to look at some facts. And me being an engineer, you know, I. I I can't argue with you about the the compressive strength of 50 KSI steel. Exactly. Hold that thought, Chris. Chris, hold that thought. I want to read uh, Mm -hmm. after the break that we're going to take just now uh, the rest of this statement. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave on the line with us at 7.35 a.m. on this Friday is Chris Corbett local attorney and professional engineer, one of the few who has that combination in the whole state of Arkansas, hopefully a a future candidate for Arkansas State Senate, Uh, not this coming election, but the following election when Jason Rapert gives up his seat there in Conway. And we'll talk more about that hopefully later in the show, Chris. Meanwhile, Chris, as you know, I've been reading this statement by the faculty of the Penn State Law School, And I'm going to repeat the first clause and then pick out certain select clauses and then we'll cover the whole document. It's not very long, but I want to do what I've just described for one very important point. I read you that first clause, as you heard, and I said, look what they're saying there. 
that is the faculty of Penn State. They're saying that we are an inherently racist country, and we've been so from the beginning up until now, and it's always been the same, essentially. And that's really a remarkable statement that fails to recognize the incredible growth that this country's had, and indeed the world has had, right? And so it's really quite sad. We had, amongst other things, a civil war that ended slavery. That doesn't mean it ended racism, but it ended slavery, and we've had positive progressions thereafter. We had in the 60s the Civil Rights Acts, right? Uh, And we've had positive progressions thereafter, and yet that initial initial clause suggests exactly the opposite. And then I'm going to read you some additional ones that that double down on that claim. So let me repeat the initial clause, and then let me read you those that have doubled down on it. And then you and I are going to continue this conversation where, remarkably, the folks at the Penn State Law School seemingly believe that we live in a time as inherently racist as it was during slavery. And that's just remarkable in my mind. The initial clause is the faculty recognizes the ongoing systemic and perpetual racial and societal injustices in this country, which have been passed on from generation to generation. And they continue. Whoa. Right? Yeah. Right? They continue. Well, uh, the the faculty yeah, recognizes that these injustices have existed since the original sin of slavery and been further and have been furthered by Jim Crow laws and unequal treatment of black Americans in our judicial system. Further doubling yeah. down on the fact that it is the same. Right? Isn't that remarkable? Then it says, uh, the faculty especially notes and is appalled by the numerous killings that have been committed against black Americans under the color of law. Well, that, that comment, actually, I don't have a problem with. You should be uh, um, uh, appalled by killings uh, of anyone uh, under the color, color of law. Now, I guess I'll, I'll, let me retreat a little bit on that. Why were, why were there those killings? You know, there's not enough, now that I read it more closely, there's not enough nuance in that statement. As we discussed from the Heather McDonald piece, uh, in the last year recorded, I think 2018, there were 19 unarmed black people killed by police in shootings. So that's yeah. 19 out of 350 million people. Each one of those 19 is tragic. 38 white folks similarly killed. Each one of those tragic. Uh, and so I'm not sure that nuance is reflected in the comment there, but that comment is at yeah. least not on its face dramatically wrong. Uh, uh, the, the, the next one is the faculty recognizes the lack of accountability for these injustices. Well, which ones now are they talking about? Are they talking about the, the numerous killings that they reflected? Because I, I remember the, the one guy that uh, killed an offender who was running away. He's in jail now. He's in jail yeah. now. So the lack yeah, of accountability, it's a lack of nuance well, here, it, right? I mean, the lack of uh, accountability yeah. for every one of these events where some of them may it have is. been wrong and there's no accountability. I don't know whether that's yeah. the case, but maybe you could assert that. But there's no such well, nuance they, here. It's just claimed lack of accountability. These are, yeah, these are huge bites that that article is taking. I mean, huge bites. In my mind, Rob, you've got two issues here, right? And two significant issues, racism, right? And yes. then two, police brutality. Right. Um, excessive force of police. I, in my mind, those th- those items are separate. Now, can we have a racist cop? Yeah, yeah can you have an overlap? Got, 
Yeah, can we have a little rap? There is. But in, in the numerous conversations that I've had with my police friends is they tell me that the, that the crime and the suspect behavior, not the race, determines most police actions. And I got to admit, does that make sense? It's not, it's the actual crime and then the suspect's behavior that determines the police action, not the race. And um, when I say that, let me let me say, for example, when I was talking to one officer, he said, look, if, I, if it comes a time and I've got to arrest you, and I, I walk up to a suspect and I say, okay, you're getting arrested, please put your hands behind your back. They're going to, if they do that, to a white person, to a black person, to a purple person, that person is instantly going to want to go, oh, wait a minute, they're going to be upset. Wait a minute, why am I getting arrested? Well, the time to argue about that and uh, um, have a meaningful conversation is in court, not right there on the street. So obey the officer, put your hands, your hands behind your back, and shut the hell up. <laughs> it's, it's good advice, Chris. And in fact, yeah. the point is that you see, folks, I saw one on television recently uh-huh. where the cops tased two people in the car. Now, they don't show what led up to it. Yeah. So one can argue, well, that was an illegitimate uh, arrest. Maybe, yeah. but I, I have no evidence that suggests that. The claim right. wasn't that it was an illegitimate arrest. The claim was, look what these cops are doing to these folks in the car. They're tasing them. Oh, well, here's yeah. the thing. If the cops tell you that you're under arrest, you must comply with the arrest. And they refuse to get out of the car. So what are the options? Let yeah. them go? That's one option. Oh, that'd be a great outcome, right? If you just say, oh, you're under, right. I'm under arrest. I don't want to be. Oh, okay. Have a nice day. Wait, what? Yeah. Wait, what? That can't be the yeah. option, right? Well, Number and they, two. And they're going to put the cops. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. They're going to put handcuffs on you. And I, I, so I said, well, at what point? does it become resisting arrest? At what point do you decide to escalate the use of force? And I said, I want to know. I don't want to know. I really want to know. He said, if you snatch your hand away from my hand, that's resisting arrest. If you simply pull back, well, it's an important point, right? Because here's the thing. When yeah. when cops are effectuating an arrest and people, right. they say, well, I didn't do anything. Well, maybe that's right in the following sense. You didn't do anything yeah. when they told you, turn around. You didn't do anything when they told you, put your arms behind your back. You didn't do anything when right. they said, get down on the ground. Yeah, that's therefore resisting arrest because now they have to yeah. do it for you. And if they have to put that's you down right. on the ground, if they have to put your hands behind your back, if they have to do the that's things right. <clears throat> that they've instructed you to do reasonably, let's assume reasonably, and I'm going to bring up an example to the contrary in just a second, well, then yeah. you're resisting arrest. Um, I, I do want to give one example <clears throat> to the contrary. There was this cop, I, I want to say in the southeast yep. of the country, I don't know, South Carolina, yep. I, can't, I can't remember for sure, where he shows up to a hotel and some folks are doing something, I don't know, they were making some sort of disturbance or something. He's got an AR-15 pointed at them and he's like, all right, get down on the ground. And it was, I don't know if you ever played like on a cruise ship. Uh, I've seen it on TV. I haven't done it where they do Simon Says, right? And it gets increasingly difficult. Now, Simon Says, yeah. left arm up, right leg down. Then they don't say Simon Says. Then you get kicked out. And I'm not trying to make light of it. But that becomes increasingly complicated very easily. And he starts yeah. giving these instructions to the guy on the ground. And he's like, okay, yeah. get on your knees. Crawl towards me. Hands behind your neck. Crawl towards me. Wait, what? <laughs> How am I crawling with my hands on my knees with the what? Huh? And 
then he starts barking out these entirely inconsistent orders, and the guy yeah. is crawling forward. He's wearing like boxer shorts and the or or or, or regular shorts that look like boxer shorts. I don't remember which kind. Right. But in any event, they start to slip down. So he puts he instinctively puts his hand down to pull up his shorts that are going down. Guy shoots him. So oh my god! Yeah. Oh yeah! Kills him! Kills him! That oh, guy got, awesome. I believe that guy got fired, and he, I think he was actually prosecuted. I'm not sure, but I think so. Yeah. And yeah. a good riddance to, to bad rubbish in that context. So right. that's right. entirely you know, unreasonable uh, instructions. By the way, unreasonable because one can't physically follow them. But if a cop says, right. uh, get on your knees, and you say, well, that's unreasonable because I shouldn't be arrested. Uh, no, no, that's not what I mean yeah. by unreasonable. I mean physically unreasonable, meaning not something that can be done. If he says, you know, right. jump up on one hand uh, uh, and do a, a, a somersault, that's unreasonable. If he says, get down on the ground, and you think it's unreasonable because you shouldn't be arrested, no, that's not what we're talking about when we say unreasonable. <laughs> Rob, i got to tell you, when you're talking about this, maybe we, maybe you and I have just now on the air determined a new instructional course for police behavior. Well, there's something to is, that. This is the gist of it. Okay, I'm going to arrest you. We're about to play Simon Says. If you don't do what I say, I'm going to escalate the use of force against you, which will entail pain. <laughs> so, well, there's we something go. to that. Simon Says, put your hands behind your back. <laughs> That's right. There's something to that. And moreover... Yeah, I, said, I need... Yeah. Moreover... The... I need to preface this. I need to preface this whole conversation. What happened that what uh, Derek Chauvin did was totally outrageous, putting his knee on on George Floyd's neck oh, right. for eight minutes and 47 seconds, you right. know, um, so. Well, let's uh, talk about um, that. I want yeah. to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, something you said made me uh, remember that something Dave does for me all the time, but I haven't done today on the show. My views, yeah. of course, are my views alone and don't necessarily reflect the views of my employer uh, or anybody else for that matter. Uh, yeah. In any event. <clears throat> Um, you know what? Before we get to that uh, apt point about the tragedy, yeah. the awful behavior that went on uh, in Minneapolis uh, with the killing of uh, George Floyd, I want to read through these resolutions uh, or, or these whereas clauses in the faculty resolution. Um, oh, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. And then we'll take a quick break because we're already coming up towards the top of the hour and we've got to get that uh, mid half hour break in. And then we'll come back and talk more about that. And then we're going to talk about what's wrong uh, specifically. I mean, we know what's wrong, but I want to break it down a little bit more uh, with the, the just appalling behavior that occurred uh, regarding the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so right. uh, they go on in this statement. They say the uh, faculty recognizes a senseless brutality being committed by those employed to serve and protect who are operating under a pattern practice and culture fostering unequal treatment. And so we need to break that down because it's really that's a terrible statement first of all the senseless brutality being committed by essentially the police now does it mean the senseless brutality be, uh, that uh, is committed by some police because there's no qualifying language in there and then we know yeah. that it doesn't appear to be particularly qualified because it says that the police are operating under a pattern practice and culturing culture fostering unequal treatment uh, I, I, that is an overbroad statement if i've ever heard one uh, it goes Way on, to, right? Goes on to say, yeah. um, this is a. Tr th and now here's a good statement. The faculty recognizes the need to have uncomfortable talks and real, honest, and transparent conversations directed towards addressing these injustices. My question is, are you going to be willing to talk 
openly and honestly with people who uh, are conservative and have different views with you, because so far we haven't seen that willingness take place whatsoever. Uh, the faculty recognizes, feels the sadness, anger, outrage, frustration, pain, and grieving caused by extrajudicial killing. Well, that's a true statement, right? Because by definition, if it's extrajudicial, it's inappropriate. <clears throat> the right. next one, the faculty recognizes the need to understand how so many feel helpless, frustrated, invisible, and disillusioned, resulting in constant fears for their personal safety and leading to bearing psychological and emotional scars. And well... There's some truth to that, but you also need to recognize that people are being told that every uh, event is an indignity and not every event is an indignity. So some of this, some of these reactions are a function of being told that every event is an indignity. Uh, The faculty, faculty recognizes that racism is an incessant malady and scourge to an otherwise organized, civilized society. Of course, that's a, a an entirely true statement. Faculty recognizes that systemic discrimination and unjust racial inequities rather continue to appall and plague our nation. Systemic discrimination and unjust <clears throat> racial inequities plague our nation. There are a few more, but we're going to have to take a break now. But that one is remarkably overbroad and exactly the point that Heather McDonald disabuses us of. With that, Think about that. Let's take a break, and we'll be back after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave on this Friday morning, 7.54 in the a.m. On the line with us is Chris Corbett, attorney, professional engineer, uh, hopefully future candidate for state senate up there in Conway. Chris, I'm just finishing up, as you know, reading the statement by the Penn State faculty. So just bear with me for a second. I want to repeat the one that I find perhaps most troubling, but certainly troubling in its inaccuracy, to be clear, uh, and then go over the remaining ones very quickly. I'll do a little summary of them, in fact, uh, and then continue our conversation uh, on these points being made here and the broader context, including the discussion of the Heather McDonald piece that we talked about earlier. For those of you just tuning in, an excellent article written by Heather McDonald, which points out, which demonstrates with evidence that the claim of endemic, uh, systemic racism in the police departments is simply unsupported. Is simply unsupported. So we we just read, and I'm going to repeat uh, this really uh, inflammatory and inaccurate. I mean, you can be inflammatory and accurate, but inflammatory and inaccurate and inaccurate claim by the faculty at the Penn State Law School, where it says the faculty recognizes that systemic discrimination. And unjust racial inequities continue to appall and to plague our nation. So our nation is plagued by systemic discrimination. And that's the, the statement that prior to the break we just discussed is, is just not accurate. It's overbroad. The, they go on with just a few more. They say uh, we shouldn't accept uh, apathy and indifference and that kind of thing. That's all good, true, and apt. Uh, the, they recognize the need to engage in peaceful protests, and that's a good thing, too, because they point out the usefulness of peaceful 
protest. So that they deserve credit for making that comment. They go on to say that they recognize that we have an obligation to fight ignorance, etc., in part because we're academics, and that's true. And the faculty recognizes the need to stand with our black brothers and sisters as effective allies, and I think that's uh, perfectly legitimate as well. Uh, and finally, that they need to stand an, an ongoing support of students and other uh, other uh, uh, folks uh, in their community who are at of color and again a perfectly legitimate statement to make there may be some minor uh, typographical or other quibbles i have with some of those i won't necessarily as a um, professor no you wouldn't do that indeed indeed. but let's continue this conversation chris because i think it's clear i welcome your opinion but i think it's clear that the Penn State faculty has now repeatedly, in this statement alone, said that we are an inherently racist country, uh, much of the kind that we have been during the times of Jim Crow and during the times of slavery, and that it is endemic and it is built into our system, as they say, systemic racism. I reject that claim, as Heather McDonald has rejected that claim. What do you say regarding that claim? Yeah, the the facts, the facts, Rob, simply don't uh, show that. And, and when I talk about facts, I'm talking about the the amount of the number of police interactions in the United States. Three hundred seventy-five million police interactions uh, in the United States per year. And um, do we have bad apples? Yeah. Do we have bad police officers? Yeah. Do we have bad attorneys? Yeah, folks. There's some bad attorneys out there. Guess what? There's also some bad plumbers out there. Um, they make mistakes. Um, doctors killed 250,000 people last year through mistakes. Um, and uh, so the facts that um, we have bad cops don't make um, a claim that there's systemic racism in police actions viable. Um, the National Academy of Sciences just published a, a, a article uh, came out on August 2019 last year that said the facts simply don't show that there's systemic racism in our police force. And, and we hit previously, we, we talked about it, you know, racism, uh, police brutality, uh, I think are two separate things. They do overlap. But the third part is accountability. Um, we, you, the, the article mentioned something about accountability. There's a made up um, legal doctrine called qualified immunity but, uh, for a government employee. These things need to be hammered, Um, and when I say hammered, I mean done away with, because qualified immunity is a a defense to trial. It's not even get to trial because they claim qualified immunity. It's not a, a defense to liability. It's a defense to bring an officer to trial in a civil case. Chris, as you can hear the music playing you off the stage as you win your uh, Oscar, uh, we're going to go into break uh, shortly. uh, And with that, uh, I turn it over to Heidi. Elsewhere. Elsewhere. 
This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. 806 on a Friday morning. On the line with us, as has been throughout most of the show, Chris Corbett, local attorney, professional engineer, hopefully future candidate for state senate out of Conway. Chris, we have just completed reading through the statement by the Penn State faculty And it's just one random statement, but you see the proliferation of these statements uh, coming out all around us. And as I pointed out from the beginning, the problem with this statement is is its extreme overbreath. The statement echoes these false claims responded to by Heather McDonald, amongst others, also by the president, also by Bill Barr, attorney general, that we live in an inherently systematically racist country. And I'm sorry, I don't accept that claim. I need evidence to support that claim. And in fact... Heather McDonald, as we discussed, marshaled the evidence to disabuse that claim that the police are systemically racist. And by the way, if you're going to accuse, as the left does, any one institution, uh, that's the one they accuse most of systemic racism. And she has debunked that claim and if you debunk the claim regarding systemic racism in the police departments, I think, frankly, you largely, I leave open the possibility, but you largely do the same more generally. What are your continued thoughts on this question? Well, you know, I, it's, it's tough. If, these things don't need to go unanswered. However, um, a lot of people are in a catch-22. Um I've I've seen some disturbing um, trends um, from the Black Lives Matter movement saying um, you're racist if you ha- if you don't come out and support us. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If I if so if I if I don't come out and support Black Lives Matters, um, then I'm racist. If I stay silent, I'm racist. If I say something, then. I get criticized and say it was wrong. They're so it, it's very it, it's very it's catch twenty two for a lot of Americans, and I think a lot of Americans are kind of keeping their head down. I heard a statement that said, uh, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." Right? right. Oh, ooh. And um, what's outstanding about that and remarkable is like, wait a minute. Um, you saw it where Drew Brees came out in the NFL and said, "Hey, I I support what's going on in the Black Lives Matters." But I'm not going to take a knee during the national anthem. He got crucified yeah. For, yeah. for saying that. Well, you and bring out an, an excellent apology. You bring yeah. out an excellent point, Chris, which is one of the comments that I thought was a good comment in the Penn State uh, proclamation was we right. need to have open, sophisticated, nuanced, uh, straightforward conversations mm-hmm. about these issues. But here you've just given us good examples of where people have stated their position and those positions are not ridiculous, whether or not you right. agree with them. They're certainly not ridiculous, and some of them may be spot on. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they get, as you describe, crucified. So either we should be able to have open and honest conversations of all reasonable views, yeah. or we don't, right? And well, what and that's, the, part, of it, that's part of our American values, right? That's right. We, we can have different opinions. You can that's have... Right. Uh, different stances. Now, 
Well, what's pretty simple is uh, you can't be you come at, you can't come out and say you're for racism. You're not a you can't come out and say you're a white supremacist, right? Good. That's obvious, right? Right. That's good, exactly. But but um, if if claiming that if you don't come out and support issues that you're racist because you don't support them is is patently wrong. By the way, and, when I say um, that you can't come out and uh, say racist comments and I say good to that right. and I and I stand yeah. by that, what I mean yeah. by that to be clear is you can't say it without getting uh, the proper negative response. But to right. be clear, right. you can make those statements legally. You are permitted, in other words, to make those statements. Those statements are protected under the First Amendment. And that's an important distinction to make. So when we say that's you right. can't, you can't without apt criticism. You can legally. Yes, sir. As much as you don't like them. Because remember, the First Amendment is not designed to protect nursery rhymes and greeting cards. It's designed to protect those statements that other people find offensive. That's why they object to them. That's why they potentially seek to prohibit them under the color of law. And that right. cannot you happen. You know, I wanted to talk with I like you, Chris. That. I, I don't yeah. think there's been enough discussion, frankly, about what went wrong uh, in terms of the killing of George Floyd. Uh, what what wrong behavior occurred. Now, to be clear, there's been plenty of discussion that this cop killed George Floyd uh, and he wasn't entitled uh, legally to do so. What I mean by that, because killing someone is never a good thing. We always hope it doesn't happen, but you can be legally entitled to kill someone. And the classic example is self-defense. And so this was not a case of self-defense. And what was terrible about this and what I want to bring out here is this cop, when, whenever any police officer takes a suspect into custody, all of a sudden that police officer has made that suspect his ward, his child, so to speak. Right? There's that legal concept, as you know, in loco parentis. Yeah. You're acting mm-hmm. as the parent. The person That's can right. be an adult, but you've taken control of that person. There was a case That's several right. years ago in which the DEA had uh, rounded up a bunch of people and they have these little holding cells in their own office. So it's not, you know, it's not a jail, although I guess it's a jail in the sense that you are held against your preference, but it's not, right. it's not a prison. It's, there aren't jail guards, all that kind of thing. But right. they hold you in a locked room. And someone put this guy in a back room on a three-day weekend uh, like on a Friday, beginning a three-day long weekend, and forgot about it. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. No food, no water, and the no water is actually well, quite dangerous for three days. Yeah. Um, and so they lock him up, and then they let him go, and some people were saying, well, you know, he was arrested. That's what happens when you get arrested. No. If yeah. you take control over an individual, then you are responsible for their reasonable care. Leaving a guy with no food or water for three days is not reasonable care. If you are... Um, restraining uh, a suspect, as was the case uh, with George Floyd, uh, and you do something that, like, uh, put pressure on the guy's neck. Now, we've been talking, not right now, but the society's been talking about whether that's a a viable method of restraint in any event. But let's assume, just for the sake of argument, that it could be. Just for the sake of argument, what is clear is that even if it could be, then you 
as the person in loco parentis, you as the person yeah. in control of that individual must monitor that individual directly. If that person stops well, moving, yeah, you're, then yeah, you're responsible. You're right then you got to lay off. That's right. And that's the problem. Well, and that's right. Go ahead, Chris. And you're right on it, Rob. You're right on it. If we can take this incident and tweak it, with, let's tweak a couple of the facts. Let's assume that um, when he put his handcuffs on, uh, let's not assume George Floyd because what happened to him was tragic. But let's assume a cop puts his handcuffs on a guy that is um, visibly excited, visibly um, stressed out, and he passes out, falls over, and hits his head. At that point, the cop has still got him under control. He's passed out on the road. Does the police officer have a duty to call in the paramedics? Does Or sure. can the police officer sit there and do nothing? Right. And and I think if you add that little fact to this, to this scene, um, the cop absolutely has a legal duty to do something. That's right. And and then take it a step further. Let's take it a step further. So was was uh, Derek Chauvin? What did he do? He didn't actually do nothing. He actually took action and was restraining this guy physically, physically in a terrible with a terrible method. Um, so and in a method, moreover, that beyond yeah. being terrible. That whatever the goal was there, now maybe the goal was nothing, maybe the goal was just to be um, um, uh, violent, but if there, if there were, were ever even a possibility that there was a goal yeah. to restrain, well, that ended, and you right. as That's a right. law enforcement officer must be on top of the events as they occur. In other words, right. uh, I'll draw an analogy. Let's say some a bad guy is um, uh, um, using uh, force uh, uh, against a police officer or anybody else uh, to which that person can respond with deadly force. And that, so right. it's force that threatens the, the life of or the um, severe bodily injury uh, to the individual. And so the, res- the person has a, a, a legal entitlement to respond with deadly force. Well, guess what? When the perpetrator stops that behavior, so does the right to respond. We saw that with the case, Absolutely. right, where the guy, um, some guy was, you know, became his own personal uh, parking sheriff where he's told someone who right. improperly parked in a handicapped That's spot, your, you can't be there, right. he's screaming, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, and, he's not, he's not right, he's not guy, the personal yeah, that sheriff. That guy in Florida was, yeah. Right, and so that guy yeah. in Florida does that, and then um, uh, um, the he's screaming at a woman, and the woman's boyfriend comes over and pushes the guy down and used a lot of force, and he shouldn't have, but... Then the guy on the ground pulls out a gun, and the guy that pushed down the guy on the ground backs away. Well, guess what? Whether or not the guy who had the gun had a right at some point therein, and I'm not sure he did or didn't, uh, to use deadly force, it ended when the guy that pushed him down backed away. No more threat. No more threat. No more right to use deadly force. No more uh, resistance of arrest. No more right to use any sort of hold that could possibly impinge the person's well-being. And that's something that needs to be trained. That's separate apart from the fact that the notion that we are holding people with a knee on the neck. It strikes me that I can't envision 
a reasonable opportunity in which you need to hold somebody uh, by a knee on a neck. Now, yeah. I, I don't and want I, to say all circumstances I can completely conceive of, but I can't yeah. conceive of a good opportunity to do that. If you've got several cops down there, the guy's in handcuffs, and he's still resisting, yeah. well, bring over two more guys to hold him down, right? Yeah. So, well, that's where you're, you're getting into like some de-escalation right. uh, techniques. Some de- so, so you're playing Simon Says, you're going to do what I tell you to do, or I'm going to hurt you. Uh, when, when they start ramping up those those use that use of physical force, there's got to be some techniques there that, that officers use to de-escalate, and that that gets into you know the other two officers that, from what I understand, are what a week they've been a week on the force or three and four days on the force. Oh, is that right? I didn't realize it was that short. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, they, they haven't been on the force long. They, they're talking to a 20 year veteran. Um, unfortunately, it's got 18 complaints against him. Against him, Derek Chavan. Uh, hey, maybe we should roll him over. And, the, and Derek says no. Um, and, they, and then they again ask, Hey, maybe we should do something different. The, the supervisor on the job right there, Chavan says no. And then unfortunately, um, you know, George Floyd succumbs to these this escalation of force. Um, That's it. So, are you saying I didn't realize you saying that those two junior officers said something to the uh, Chauvin guy? They, they, those two guys. There's a video out there where the two guys were holding his um, his torso down and his legs down, and they were um, asking Chauvin, "Hey, should we roll him over?" Oh, that's interesting. Says no. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it gets even worse. And um, uh, so what? So what's going to be real hard? Uh, I think for the general public to understand is um, these two officers, they were acting in concert with Derek, but uh, they were trying to do something else. They were trying to do something different. That's interesting. Doing something. Chris, hold that thought for a moment. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after these words. This is a Dave Ellswick show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on the line with me is Chris Corbett. Chris, as you know, we are continuing to talk about these issues uh, plaguing society. Um, uh, the question that I have for you, uh, we only have a yes, few sir. minutes before uh, we go to break. We took our last break right. uh, late in the hour, as you know. Um, how do we balance this? Uh, um, f- these claims that we have ta- debunked, essentially, that we live in an right. inherently systemic racist society, Sorry, Heather McDonald has debunked that claim with the proper concern that we have instances of uh, police um, uh, wrongful and uh, murderous behavior. In other words, look, you have wrongful behavior by people all over the world. Uh, You have uh, racists in very in every aspect of life somewhere but there is a difference when you have a guy with a gun and handcuffs and the legal obligation uh, to follow his instructions and uh, uh, at some point uh, George Floyd was totally incapacitated and yet this cop kept his knee on George Floyd's neck killing him uh, and yeah. so if you put all that authority in uh, that cop's um, reach, uh, and indeed, as you pointed out to me, I didn't know uh, the other cops were suggesting alternatives, turn him over, whatever it may be, and this cop rejected it, and there's there's no ability to to stop that from happening at the moment, 
Uh, what do we do? What's what are some of the solutions that we should be talking about? We've talked about the overbreath of these claims, and I think that's an important point to talk about because the left, yeah. uh, as you pointed out earlier, will never miss an opportunity to take advantage of a tragedy. But yeah. there was a tragedy here, and there is there are things that we need to uh, consider doing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, being a lawyer and being a litigator. I would prefer that we, you have the right to a trial and take these, these individuals to trial and to get a big, fat judgment on the city of Minneapolis um, if, if the proof is there. That they've got some sort of yeah, but don't we need to do more than that? Meaning, okay, George Floyd is dead. We don't want another George Floyd murder. What do we do? I I realize. I think you're right that if you get a big judgment, it acts as an incentive to correct the wrong, and that's why here in Arkansas, for example, we need to. Uh, do away with the sovereign immunity that recently yeah. has been implemented. And most of the, uh, maybe all of the Republicans that I know of uh, agree that we need to do away with it. It's a bad idea. Right. And those few folks out there somewhere in the ether that claim, oh, well, you see, uh, it's going to cost the state money or a city money. Yeah, it's going to cost up front some money. And in the mm-hmm. long run, it's going to save money and save lives because it makes people yeah. responsible. So uh, we need to do away with that well, sovereign immunity. Unity. Go ahead. Yeah. And the, well, the, what I was just thinking is, you know, that is a reaction, right? So just take them to court, filing suit, that's a reaction. What what more than that is, we're talking about accountability and, and consequences for their improper actions. I think our true leaders need to act. And, and when I say that, they need to act. They need to, all of them are just reacting to this deal. They needed to act years ago on this. And when I say when they need to act, they needed to have better better accountability in place. They need to have um, better training in place. Um, they need to educate the public um, on how uh, on how officers are going to arrest you. That, hold I mean, that thought, go ahead. Uh, and mm-hmm. we're going to take a break and be back right after this. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Simon filling in for Dave on this Friday morning. It is eight thirty-five in the a.m. And we have on the line Chris Corbett. Chris, uh, the lieutenant governor, Tim Griffin, is going to join us around 845. We'll take our break a little bit earlier so we can keep him for the final segment in its entirety. Fantastic. I want to talk with you in the meantime about an issue related to all that's going on here and everything that we've been talking about. Each of our examples builds upon the other. We started with Heather McDonald pointing out that the claim about systemic racism in law enforcement across this country simply is unsupported by the evidence. We read the Penn State law faculty resolution that makes claims to the contrary, essentially that uh, we live in a systemically racist country. Uh, And as I just pointed out, that is not supported. And we talked about how the statements were significantly overbroad and indeed the statement by the law faculty that we need to have open and honest conversations about these topic what topics while true seems uh, not to be honored in practice i don't know about penn state but in general and the perfect example perhaps of that was when a white student wrote a white professor at ucla and said What do you think about the idea of giving automatic passes to black students during this difficult time due to the experiencing due to their experiences? The professor wrote back a series of rhetorical and Socratic and straightforward questions, essentially saying, well, 
how do I know who's black, who's not black? What about people who are partially black? Uh, a, a series of questions. And he was claimed to be insensitive in asking those questions and suspended. Suspended. No. Suspended. Oh, gosh. That's what I was just talking about. He should have stayed silent. You know, I mean, but, but, but how, how does his silence have been viewed? Oh, man. Right. And so that's the uh, problem when the people with at Penn pay, State. Was suspended with pay or without pay? I don't know. It's a good question. It makes a difference, no doubt. But yeah. nonetheless, many of us who go into teaching, oh, don't get us wrong. Uh, we like to get paid. And I don't think many of us could afford to do it without getting paid. But we also like to do right. our jobs. So uh, for people like me and, and many of my colleagues, we actually prefer to do our job and get paid versus just to get paid. Uh, and that may be unusual in the grand scheme of things. But I'm sure this guy does not like being put on suspension. And it's really remarkable. This guy engages with this student and uh, sa- asks a series of questions. And they decided that, oh, that's you can't engage that way. You can't have that communication. By the way, to be clear. He baited, no, him. He baited him, right? Well, I don't know. Because the white student that wrote, that wrote the white professor seemed genuine in his interest it's a it's a fair question that the student asked and apparently after the professor wrote him back the student kind of even apologized i don't think he needed to apologize by the way i think he's perfectly entitled to ask the question but the student seemed okay with the professor's response took no offense at the response but somehow that response was shared so maybe the student shared it with somebody and other people uh, took offense at those comments let me tell you the questions were largely as i described to you and they were rhetorical they were socratic and some were just plain straightforward uh, none of which all three categories are perfectly appropriate fashions in which to ask questions particularly as a professor and this guy while teaching in the uh, accounting department was also a professor there at the law school as an adjunct professor so he's a lawyer and, and we often ask those types of questions so it's really remarkable this guy was suspended Oh, that's out. Man, that's outrageous. Well, and and this is a very environment that you would hope to be able to explore uh, sensitive topics and talk about um, different sides of view. And um, I want to, so so a government entity suspended him for what he said. That's right. So it's a First Amendment violation. That's right. There's some trouble there. You're right on the money, Chris. I want you to hold that thought. Because we're going to take our break a little bit early uh, in this segment so that we have plenty of time to talk to the lieutenant governor when he calls in around 845. So with that, Heidi, let's take a break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave on this Friday morning at 843. We are going to have Tim Griffin pop in for just a few minutes at some point in this last segment. He's going to try to squeeze us in. He's in between events. And so uh, we'll see if we can make that work. In the meantime, uh, not to diminish the great value of the insightful Chris Corbett on the line. Chris P. Corbett, as we know, also known as Crispy Bacon. Uh, And uh, Chris, I want to read from you more on this story that we're talking about, this professor. Uh, And there there are many stories now out on it. And so I just want to uh, give you a a couple of the key uh, parts of the reporting on it. Um, And he said that when this white student asked about giving uh, different grading, basically passing uh, black students, 
the Klein, uh, now I'm reading from the story, Klein, that's the name of the teacher, replied that the suggestion would be difficult because coronavirus restrictions meant his videotape lectures were all online and he doesn't know the races of his students in most cases. He added that canceling the final exam wasn't an option because it was the only grade in the class. He said the student whom he declined to identify wrote back to apologizing, adding he didn't mean to be offensive. I don't think the student was, by the way, that the two had known each other from a previous class. And in the student's first email, he thanked Klein for providing him and others with anti-racist resources. By the next day, however, Klein's email was trending on Twitter. Uh, and some of those responding to online pe- petition that was posted uh, were most offended by the email's closing remarks in which he, Klein, paraphrased paraphrase MLK, Martin Luther King's famous statement that people should be judged not by the color of their skin, but but by the content of their character. Um, Klein said he's an admirer of uh, of King. Uh, I think we have uh, on the line. Is that right, Heidi? Oh, no. Uh, well, well, I see her talking on the phone, so I'm not sure if that's uh, the lieutenant governor, but I want to squeeze him in uh, if that's uh, so I'll uh, I'll wait for her signal. Uh, and I'll continue to say that um, the, this Professor Klein wrote, are there any students that may be of mixed parentage, such as half black, half Asian? What do you suggest that I do with them, a full concession or just half? Th- that's the rhetorical question that I was talking about. But with that, let's put that discussion yeah. on hold for a second. We've got Tim Griffin uh, on the line. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Tim Griffin, how are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. I hope you're all well. I am on my way. I hope I don't get the number wrong. Uh, We are celebrating today, even though I think the actual day is Sunday, the 245th birthday. Boy, that's an old person, isn't it? Indeed. 245th birthday of the United States Army. That's fantastic. uh, So I am driving uh, to the Capitol, and uh, I'm going to cut a big old birthday cake. Awesome. Tim, yeah, remind, remind the audience, because frankly, I think you're overly modest uh, when it comes to your outstanding service in the Army. Tell us what you, what your rank is, what you do in the Army, how long you've been involved. And if I recall correctly, do you have a, one of your kids or something is also affiliated? To, tell us all about that. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, well, my I want my kid to go to a place like like West Point, but uh, we will, you know, he, he, he's young, and and we're we're going to see where that leads. Indeed. Uh, yeah, I got in. And are you there? I'm here. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I got in in 1996, uh, and and uh, been in 24 years, and uh, I think they're going to allow me six more years before they kick me out. I'm a colonel now. I um, command a unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and um, we support uh, 18th Airborne Corps, 82nd Airborne, uh, USASOC, which is Special Operations Command, and uh, 1st Special Forces Command. Bunch of the USAC POC, which is a psychological operations people. So we got a great unit over there. I love the Army. Uh, it's been an honor. Yeah. It's been one of the most productive things of my career and uh one of the one of the one of the good decisions i made well i think it's wonderful uh, you're a full bird uh, colonel that's no easy task to attain it's really something remarkably admirable if i recall correctly you even served uh, on the ground either in iraq or in afghanistan isn't that right 
Yeah, I was in was in Iraq in '06, and uh, yeah. So I tell you, man, it. I, I have gained. Uh, I hope the Army's got something out of me, but I can tell you, I've gained a ton from it. Uh, it's it's um, it's made me do a lot of things that I needed to do, and take a lot of courses, and meet a lot of really interesting people from all walks of life, all backgrounds that I never would have known before, and um, that's a great thing. So. You know, I tell kids and young people, um, whether it's the reserve, the National Guard, or active duty, join join a service if you can. It's uh, you'll benefit from it, and the and the country needs you. Uh, it's just a it's just a great thing, man. It's it's a great thing, and the beauty of the Guard and the Reserve is you can pursue whatever civilian career you want and have this too. So it's um it's a great thing, man. Um, Anyway, uh, I, I will point out, too, uh, well, I don't know what y'all been talking about this morning, but I've been thinking about this ridiculous defund the police thing. Indeed. And, oh my God. you know, it's interesting. I, I've prosecuted uh, different Army uh, folks over the years, and one of them, I, I remember an attempted murder case uh, at Fort Campbell in 2005-2006. You know, look, there are, because we're on Earth— and we're all imperfect. Uh, there's always going to be imperfections in everything on earth. And when we have soldiers that do bad things, no one goes around and says uh, all service members are dishonorable. Or although some folks said that type of thing in the in the '60s, and we had a you know problem with folks coming back to Vietnam. But but people don't paint the whole service and they don't say defund the army at least reasonable serious people don't and i think that's the case here with this defund the police no one serious is saying that uh the french folks are saying that the same people that wanted to abolish ice the same people frankly that many of which believe only the police should have guns they're the ones saying defund the police anyway um you know so the good news is By and large, most Americans, everyday hardworking Americans, they don't don't believe that nonsense. It's very much part of the French conversation. And those people that believe that defund stuff and all, they're they're on the fringe. They ought to stay on the fringe. And they really have no no, uh, place in the conversation. Uh, It's like – I mean, if they if they don't even believe the police exist, then then they certainly should exist or be funded. They certainly can't be part of the uh, the discussion of how we can uh, find solutions to some some issues. But so that's the heartening thing is uh, as I go around and talk with folks, you know, um, only the fringe believe that nonsense. Tim, I think that's exactly right. But where I do see a problem is that I think that what has now been characterized as mainstream media i don't always love the term but i but i think it works uh that the mainstream media seems to be echoing those comments as if they are far more widespread than they are in what seems to me to be an effort to be disruptive of what is reality well you make look you make a good point there and and i will say that a lot of people a lot of times the, the, the voices that are louder and full of conflict uh, get more attention. Why? Because the news is a business, and they love, you know, if you report the peaceful, 
people don't watch and you don't get ratings. And so a lot of this, you're right, a lot of the voices that represent only the fringe, only the fringe, a lot of them get way more uh, attention and airtime than they should. You know, there's an old saying about journalism school, and it, 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 it's not a criticism. It's just, it's just a fact that I, I was told I didn't go to journalism school. But I was told that, that they're sort of taught the principle that if a Boy Scout, this is the old, this is the old saying, if a Boy Scout uh, helps uh, an elderly uh, person across the street, that's not news. That's a positive thing in study, but that's not news. If, if for some reason a young kid uh, attacked the elderly person, then that would be news, right? And, and I understand that. I understand that. But, but the point is the thing that happens a million times a day will get no attention because it is routine or thought to be routine, right? Indeed. And the thing that, the one, the thing that happens once out of a million, the negative thing, that gets the news coverage. And so there's some of that going on. And, and the principle there is, you know, they want to report things that, that, that people find, uh, don't find every day. And so there's a lot of that going on, and, and the, they love conflict. Uh, you know, I used to say in Congress when we would work together on this or that, uh, it gets almost no coverage. And then any conflict, boom, right page. Right. So, I mean, that's, that is part of the – that's just part of the way uh, – yeah, that's the way it works because people are attracted to conflict and, and they want to watch it. And they, you know. So there's a lot of different things going on there. Uh, but you're right. People that shouldn't get any coverage get coverage uh, in, 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 uh, on this issue and others. But um, anyway, well, look, um, we love you. We love you all. Appreciate your listeners. Uh, I hope I got to get in here. There's a two-star general in here. And last time I checked, two-star <laughs> is two ranks, two ranks above a colonel, although I'm not in uniform right. today. I'm, I'm there as lieutenant governor. I, I still remember where I stand. So the two right. stars in here, and uh, we're going to cut this cake, and uh, and we're going to practice whatever guidelines we're supposed to practice in the Capitol. And so I'm going to get in here, but I appreciate you uh, filling in and um, for Dave, and um, and God bless all y'all. Thank you so much, Tim. That was Lieutenant Governor Tim Griffin, a good friend of the show, a good friend of Dave's, a good friend of ours, and hopefully the future governor of this great state. Uh, Tim Griffin really has a remarkable background. We focused during this conversation on the fact that he's been serving in the military for, what do you say, roughly 25 years. Uh, he served yeah. in Iraq. Uh, it's really rem- And he's very modest about all that. And sometimes oh, in politics... Bob, he's very modest. He's a, a full colonel. Full colonel. And the reason I know... Yeah. yeah, the reason I know about that is my granddad was a full colonel, and he was a graduate of West Point. And he's... He, yeah, a full colonel's a big deal. You get to go to... Uh, the Army War College at the Pentagon. Um, you have to have to serve 22 cumulative years in the in the Army to, to get light colonel. That's just lieutenant colonel. He's he's a heavy colonel. He's not the light colonel anymore. He's a full bird. Uh, are you calling him fat? <laughs> Did you call him fat? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> he's a fat bird. He's a fat not bird. bird. No, he's the full bird colonel. All right, and for those folks that yeah, may not know, and that's perfectly okay. The symbol that's yeah. used for colonel for a full colonel is the the American eagle, and lieutenant colonel right. is the clusters. The 
the same clusters that you see for major, but just in a different color. Uh, and that's so, correct. Uh, and, and that's called lieutenant colonel, and sometimes people abbreviate that uh, uh, nicely as light colonel. Um, but yes, it's really, and of course, uh, again, for those that may not know, uh, colonel is the rank just before a one-star general, before general. And so it's really That's exactly right. That's quite, exactly right. Right. It's quite an impressive accomplishment uh, for Tim Griffin. And it's really an honor and a privilege to have him on the Dave Ellswick show. He really yeah. adds to the conversation. And as he did, right, did it's really remarkable. He was tied up and apparently um, yeah. someone broke all the radios in his car and his house because he wasn't listening to the show prior there, too. I'm jokingly saying. But the, uh, <laughs> didn't his comment about defund the police build exactly on what oh, we were saying here? Right on point. Great analogy. No one's calling for the defunding of the army because because one army officer did something stupid and illegal. Exactly. Um, uh, we we did have that. Um, what, what was it? The secretary of the navy that uh, we got rid of. Not we, but the, the, was gotten rid of uh, when he was acting. I think in a stupid fashion, he fired that commander of the. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, what was it? The uh, aircraft carrier. I forget the name of it. Yeah. Yes. That's. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. I don't remember. I can't remember the name of the yeah. ship. Yeah. In any event, um, we've only got a few minutes left, Chris, and we've been, uh, about two and a half minutes, I think, and we've been talking about this UCLA accounting professor who was fired for posing the questions that I read to you before Tim Griffin uh, got on the line when a student who I think did honestly, wrote him and said, uh, should we consider giving black students an automatic pass given the events that are going on? Uh, and the professor wrote back and said, well, that's kind of a hard thing to figure out how to do even if you wanted to do it. And then how do you break that down? Uh, um, do you give, uh, uh, is it only for, uh, what happens, I think he said, what happens if your students are half black, half Asian? Uh, and yeah. uh, how is it, how do you implement that system effectively is what he asked and the the student took those responses seemingly in, in a good fashion but somehow the um exchange got out there and the lefties the extreme lefties uh, uh came down on him remember we discussed the penn state statement that said we need to be able to talk about these issues op- openly and honestly and here's an example yeah. of why people particularly conservatives i don't think this guy was a conservative by the way i think he was i think he's a liberal law uh, liberal accounting professor i think, right? I think he is right yeah. uh, but this well, is he's, what, on, he's on involuntary leave yeah, that's he's right on involuntary leave right now yeah he for for asking a series of questions and engaging in a legitimate belief, a le- legitimate discussion. And that's the problem that we see these days, right? right. Where the left says, yeah. well, we need to have an open, honest conversation about these things. And what they mean by open and honest conversation is you better repeat exactly what I'm saying or we are going to drum you out of the business. The same issue uh, came about when they tried to kill the op-ed or they, they didn't try to kill it because it was after the fact. But they, they said, Sometimes. New York Times said, yeah, New York yeah. Times said, we should have never published Tom Cotton's up yeah. Oh my goodness. Tom Cotton broke the New York Times. He broke he it. Broke he broke it. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, we're, we'll sum up with uh, repeating what we talked about on Monday, which is Tom Cotton broke the New York Times because the delicate daisies can't uh, abide having a reasonable opinion from a conservative expressed anywhere near them and they view that as yeah. violence. They're not even able to have an open debate. And so when you hear them claim they want to have an open debate, no dice. We're done?